You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always. Today, we are taking a deep dive into the commercial, industrial and retail markets with my favorite commercial agent, Luke Randazzo from Burgess Ross and he's back in. If you didn't hear him on our episode 155, giving us a fantastic introduction into the commercial market and how things work with buying and leasing, then please go back and listen. Luke Randazzo, thanks for coming in again, mate. Thanks for having me. Where do you want to start? Commercial, retail, industrial, they've all had a really interesting journey over the last few years on both the leasing and the sales space with regards to vacancy and then getting some great results or at least some promising results now. Differences, obviously, as you spoke before, between commercial and industrial and retail and how they're faring. But if we can be really specific today about things we can relate to with sure. regards to the locations and whatnot, that'd be really helpful, I think. Where do you want to start? Let's talk industrial to start with. All right. Not a area that I actually personally specialize in, but I'm in the market and I've got a pretty good understanding of what's going on. We are talking about warehouses, all yeah. the places where our mining companies, our fabrication manufacturing companies would be. So, give Absolutely. us some locations. So, generally, there's three major pockets or areas that in, you'll find industrial properties, and it's just broken into the north, the east, and the south. So, north, Malaga, Osmond Park, Wangara, suburbs like that. East, Kudal, Hazelmere, Welshpool, suburbs like that. And then south, Jandicott, Bibber Lake, Coburn Central. O'Connor? O'Connor, absolutely. So you bunch these all up together. Is that because your buyers are comparing these? They're going, well, look, I'm sort of neither here nor there, whether it's Coburn or O'Connor or Henderson, or are they more specific? I think buyers generally know where they want to be. A guy's running his business in Malaga. There's a good chance if he needs to expand, he's going to probably stay in Malaga. His client base will be there. He's familiar with the area. So unless they're expanding, into a second location where you might have a Malaga and then a Jandicott warehouse or something along those lines or O'Connor like you touch on. A lot of owner-occupiers or business owners will stay in those areas that they understand and they know. Yep. I think the nature of the different areas, they do specialize in different things. So you look south and again, O'Connor is a good example or Naval Base or Henderson, they're port side. Mm. So they offer something very different. Whereas Hazelmere, Kudale, Welshpool, they're all about transport, logistics and distribution and the airport as well. So it does come back to the geographic location, I suppose, and what they're close to and what they can offer. I found Osborne Park, Wangara, Malaga, a lot more manufacturing and construction market as well. Yeah. And a lot of cars as well. Yep, (laughs) absolutely. Yep, services as well. Yeah. So paint us a picture on the industrial space. What was it like a couple of years ago and how has it transformed to now? Yeah, I think the industrial space at the moment is performing phenomenally. And I think that's on the back of the mining boom that's happening up north. And people often talk about a boom, but the mining sector is performing very well up north. So that translates. And sometimes it takes six to 12 months to translate down here, but it certainly feels like the guys are just leasing and selling whatever that comes across their desk at the moment. Businesses needing more space, second locations, and just driving that industrial economy. And I think that's on all fronts, north, south, and east. And the other thing as well, the idea of working from home, if you're working in a warehouse or fabrication, you can't do that from home. So It's not relevant. No, these guys are not impacted in the same way as an office user in West Perth or, or Subiaco. It's very different. And I suppose the last thing I would add to that as well is with COVID, e-commerce and storage and distribution and logistics and online shopping and all of those things, 
that's changed the landscape in the last few years of how many distribution centres are now popping up near the airport. I've noticed a lot more warehouses starting to fill that land that was surrounding the airport and the Bayswater business park as well has started to fill out. Absolutely. And Welshpool, which was sitting a lot of vacant warehouses for quite a while, they're all full again. Absolutely. And like I said, it comes back to transport logistics. If people were buying more things online, then someone's got to store them and then someone's got to deliver them. What are we generally paying in these spaces if we are looking at industrial pocket? Firstly, what are we paying generally? And are you paying more? Are they more premium locations? You pay more to be in Wangara versus Malaga or versus Kudau? Yeah, no, no, it's a good question. Generally, the closer to the city, you'll pay a premium of some sort. So Osborne Park as a rate per square meter will demand a higher rate than Wangara just because of its locality. It's a 12-minute drive from the CBD. And again, it comes down then to what those areas actually specialize in. So Welshpool, Kewdale, Hazelmere, big bulk transport logistics so there might be a greater requirement for hard stand opposed to everything being under a roof so it's more land based versus warehouse based yeah and they still rest assured they still need warehousing but it does differ on the locality from i would say the cbd and then also the access is it easy access to those main thoroughfares in tongan highway row highway the, the freeway as well so that these guys can distribute and deliver what they're fabricating or what they're working on as a business Have we seen that it's the rents that have gone up, which then affects the values? Is that how it's working in the industrial space? Yeah, look, generally the owner-occupier market is still really strong, but if you can find a good leased industrial investment with a good covenant and term in place and a market rent, then investors will be all over that as well. Absolutely. It does somewhat future-proof in the industrial space. Let's move on to the retail space. Sure. Now, when we think about retail, we're not just thinking about the Galleria or Karen Up or things like that. It's all the shop fronts that run along yeah. all the cafe strips and in the CBD and everything, right? Absolutely, yeah. I think Karen Up's a, a good example. I went and visited the new shopping center with my partner on the weekend and I think we spent 15 minutes trying to get a parking spot. That's crazy. Yeah, and it was like the retail shopping center. If you build it, they will come because it was just mania. But the other side of retail is strip shops and a good examples of that is Oxford Street in Leaderville, Rockaby Road in Subiaco, even to an extent Scarborough Beach Road in Mount Hawthorne, Angove Street in North Perth. Albany Highway in Vic Albany Park. Albany Highway, Vic Park, absolutely. So Beaufort Street, Mount Lawley, and I'm seeing a real surgence in Beaufort Street, Inglewood. There's certainly some interest and a bit of demand around there now as well. It's interesting to see how over the last five to six years, those cafe strips especially have fared or not fared really you think about Leaderville, it's, it's generally doing okay. Beaufort Street got smashed. Rockaby Road smashed. And that's obviously also with the Subiaco Oval, with the stadium having moved in that time as well. But then a place like Albany Highway and Vic Park seems to have just chuffed along quite nicely. Isn't it strange how... And Scarborough Road, Mount Hawthorne's the same. That's thriving. I find it's almost like each strip kind of has a go and then rents do get quite hot. And I feel that's what happened in Beaufort Street, Mount Lawley. You'd probably think 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago where that, that was pumping. And I'd make an example of Oxford Street Leaderville as, as little as three years ago, that was just about full. And then I think I saw a survey of some sort saying that there was about 30-odd properties in the strip that within a one-kilometre radius that were empty. And then something like ABN Group comes in, pulls in a few hundred staff, and then correct you can't see a four-lease sign That's anymore. exactly right. And that comes back to, I do a lot of business in Subiaco, and I'm a big believer in Subiaco's resurgence as well. And it just comes back to people. So say, for example, in Subiaco, there's been 
quite significant uh, expenditure in both private and public projects. And that just brings people back to the area. Or apartment buildings, right? Yeah. So you look at the, the Blackburn building, I think it's 186 odd apartments. And then up the, the Paris end of Rockaby Road, there's another 40 or 50 apartments being built right now, 37 by the Celsius guys at the old Barrow Day funeral home, and then another 10 across the road. And there'll be more projects than that. And then Bob Hawke College, every year they add circa 270 odd students. And then Princess Margaret Hospital in the next 10 years, we might see something happen there. So so what do those projects do? They just bring people back. There's parents dropping kids off. Consumers. For Consumers, absolutely. So if you've got 186 apartments, just talking about Blackburn alone, then those people need amenity. That's a lot of coffee. It's a lot of coffee, a lot of groceries, a lot of boutique, fashion shopping. And that's where you just hope that then the strip then experiences less vacancy, higher rents and gets back to some form of normality and then it passes on to Hay Street and surrounding areas. My understanding of why places like Beaufort Street have really struggled in the last few years is a theme of very greedy landowners who are looking to retain very high rent amounts. We heard this even before COVID and were not prepared to drop the rent per square metre, which would affect the value, as we've spoken about before, of their asset because it then changes the value on the, with regards to the yield. And then you've got these retail operators who can't afford it and then they have to leave and then it just stays empty. Rather than dropping the rents, it just stays empty for years. Yeah, look, I'm not sure I'd use the term greedy. I think it's probably more a matter of conditioning. It's about landlords understand because there's a lot of landlords in those areas who've had buildings and they might be generational buildings that are passed within families. A lot of them are, aren't they? Absolutely. And it's just about understanding and conditioning because if they were getting an incredible rent during a boom peak, even if it was 15 or 16 years ago, if they're not being conditioned to understand your rent might be half now, it's very hard for a landlord just to accept that. So it's about explaining, conditioning, this is where the market's at. And if you do want to meet the market and you do want to keep a tenant who pays most of your outgoings. Yeah, this is the point, right? They're paying, at the very least, even if they're paying a dollar a week in rent, yeah. they're also paying all of your outgoings. Yeah, and I think then it comes down to the individual landlord in what their situation is. Is the bank still involved or is it often they're owned with no debt? Mm. So it's not owing them anything and they'll wait for their dream tenant. So I think the job is certainly on ourselves as real estate agents or the leasing agents that are out there to condition their landlords on market conditions. That's how you find tenants and that's how then tenants can survive because a tenant, as you touched on, has a, I suppose, a break-even point where if the rent is paying, you know, the, the predominant amount of their revenue and profit is all going towards the rent, then it's just unsustainable. When you think about the performance of sales recently in the retail space especially, do you notice that it's the big international brands that generally get the best yields? the best cap rates and people will pay overs for a Maccas or a Subway or a Zabrero's or a Guzmini Gomez or something like that versus the little corner store or is it the other way around? No, 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 absolutely. The stronger your covenant, the bigger the company. If it's national, fantastic. If it's international, even better. So the longer the lease, the, I suppose the bigger the company and the strength of that covenant of a proven non-performer. Like you say, if you're buying a, a McDonald's or a Hungry Jacks or a, even a petrol station and you've got one of those leases that goes back to their parent company, then that makes the yield a lot sharper because it's a lot safer investment. So it just comes back to risk and reward. People are happy to have a premium to know that their property is tenanted by a secure blue chip tenant. 
So does that also, if we can segue into your favorite space, the commercial space, Sure. does that work as well if your tenant is a BHP or a Rio versus a small engineering company? Yeah, absolutely. Same principle. So as an investor, industrial, retail, commercial, the more solid the covenant, the better the yield. And how's that commercial space going? Give me some real deep dive because this is your space. <laughs> what is the last couple of years story of what we've seen in terms of if you think about comparables on sales figures, we're saying, well, geez, this would have sold for X amount and we've just seen them sell for this amount. Yeah, absolutely. I think probably 2016 up to the start of 2020 last year, it was quite a challenging market where as agents, it was just about finding buyers and trying to transact with what you had to work with. And the start of 2020 started to see some green shoots in that it just felt like the market was starting to turn. And then as, as we all know, February, March, we're all impacted with COVID. And what I found last year was that the buyers who had foresight and could see that COVID will be around for a while, but it will come and at some point go, but property generally is a longer term prospect or investment of some sort. They did really well last year. Buy low. Yeah, buy low. Buy where there's risk, perceived risk. Perceived risk, absolutely. And there certainly was last year because there was so much unknown, but those buyers have done very well. And then this year, I would say the last six months has been one of the most positive markets I've seen. It just in terms of general activity, and it's all driven on the back of low interest rates from my point of view and, and more confidence in the WA market. So when we're talking about office space, it's important to really think practically about, well, these things don't just get bought and sold because they have a good price tag on them. They get bought and sold because people actually want to operate offices in these locations. Absolutely. And they go down for the same reasons. When we think about the last boom you spoke about, places like West Perth that were just booming in the prime times of 2006, 7, 8, 9, mm. and they've been absolutely gun-shy, empty for over a decade in a place like West Perth. And you think about, well, why is that? Well, because so many of those small mining companies, that's where they were, and that's where they currently are not. But then you think about other places, your leadable office space, your Subiaco office space, people are starting to move back into those areas, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And West Perth is experiencing somewhat of a resurgent. It, again, those landlords that are then refurbishing those old buildings, attracting new tenants, offering incentives of some sort, they've been rewarded. That's fantastic. No one wants an empty building. We don't want empty buildings next door to the CBD, let alone the CBD themselves. But in terms of that next kind of layer out, Leadervilles and Nedlands and Subiacos, there's definitely an attraction there. And it comes back to even that principle of working from home, that suburbia neighborhood, that idea that some people don't necessarily have to be operating an office on St. George's Terrace to make it happen. Is that a reflection of people coming to terms with the fact that I don't need to be on the terrace to be deemed a serious business anymore? We can be yeah. more suburban based and still be a first class business. Oh, absolutely. If a business has got a shop front, even if it's an office or whatever it is, that's a step in the right direction already because a lot of businesses now are predominantly working from home. So if you've got a shop front, it's still a professional address, even if it is Netherlands or Claremont or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. We're open for business. So I think it didn't used to be like that. I think you had to legitimise yourself. You had to be in West Perth. Yep. No, I agree. Uh, look, I still think West Perth is your resources hub for oil and gas and mining. I still think that's... And professional services, accountants and lawyers, financial planners. It will always have value because it's so close to the CBD. So it just comes back, like I was saying, the, the landlords that are proactive are the ones that will reap the benefits and gain tenants. I had a meeting on St. George's Terrace a few days ago and walked out five o'clock at night and looked around just a bit of a street view on Google sort of thing. There was 180 view and I counted five for lease signs just without even stepping. Mm. 
what's the future of the office space on the terrace, especially when we hear so many negative things about the CBD itself in just terms of its more broader fundamentals? How is that affecting your how the CBD office space has a future? Yeah, look, I empathise with the retailers. Because they get affected by the office market. Again, it just comes back to more coffees or less coffees, that kind of thing, and lunches and things like that. And again, the phenomenon of working from home is a real thing. I'm of the belief it might do a 360 and people might start coming back to the office when they realise those intangibles that are... They're not getting promoted because the boss doesn't even know where they are. Yeah, absolutely. And there's sometimes that blur between what's work and home and... The value of not being able to get up, I think I said on the last episode of being able to get up and tap someone on the shoulder and share information or request information. Be front of mind for opportunities. Yeah, culture, morale, all those things. You know, see if black computers isn't necessarily always the answer. But working from home has also opened up my eyes and probably a lot of people's eyes in that not everything needs to be done in the office at the same time. So I stand by my position on this is subject to the individual and their discipline and then subject to the business and the actual industry that you're in. Because I do acknowledge that some roles do not require you to come into the office every single day. So does that mean that the 1,000 square metres that a Rio Tinto has got in a CBD office is probably not going to be a 1,000 anymore? I mean, that would have tens of thousands, but from going forward, it's going to be a fraction of that because there's always now going to be a fraction of people that we've all accepted don't need to be, as you said, in, in the city. That's my opinion, Trent. That's going to affect the value of all these square metres of property in the CBD, is it not? Yeah, look, that would be my opinion is that companies might need to readjust their floor plates or readjust what their requirements are. I mean, hot desking is now normal, booking desks in advance. If I asked a KPMG or a PwC two years ago about that concept, it's probably not in terms of booking a desk because of working from home or working in the office, it wasn't existent. But hot desking has always been a thing, but now it's in terms of actually where are you working today, from home or the office. So yeah, does it affect the rates and the supply of office stock? It probably will. How do you counteract that? You just have your big landlords. Well, you need more demand though, right? Yeah, and the big landlords who own these towers, they're spending the money on them, you know, five-star endotrip facilities, specky fit-outs, greater incentive. So That's good for the rest of us. But at the end of the day, if we've got more supply coming onto the market as a constant than ever before because of the shift in culture and we don't have demand backing that up, that's extra 20 or 30%, where's it coming from? If it's not coming from anywhere, then it's going to be a case of building owners, cannibalizing its own tenants, right? and still having a whole bunch of B-grade offices that are falling away. Yeah, look, I think that is true to a degree, but at the same time, you've got massive multinationals that are still investing in St. George's Terrace, spending hundreds of million dollars. There's been a few recent transactions on the terrace, and I think these guys are too clever to spend that type of money without having a plan of some sort. And I still stand by the idea that the CBD is still the CBD, and there's going to be plenty of businesses who need to be and want to be in the CBD, So it just comes back to like any purchase or lease, it just comes back to price. When we think about price, what sort of yields are we talking about these days with commercial property? Is there a difference in yield even from a location basis or is it all really more again about the covenant with regards to who is your tenant? Yeah, it's a mix and it comes back to what is an investor's plan? If an investor has a plan of one day occupying or one day developing a property, then they might pay for that capital growth of the property or, or their other. But if you've got an investor who's just purely buying on a yield basis and they don't care if it's a green title or a strata property, they're just paying for the covenant. Well, let's say we're buying Central Park, buying a massive building there. There's no development potential there, is there? No, no, no. You're just buying on a yield basis. 
And whether you're talking Central Park or if you're talking a petrol station or a fast food asset class or a childcare, it depends on the strength of the covenant. I think buyers will also look at the term that's that's left on the lease. Who's your actual operator? What type of security your bank guarantee in place? Proven performance. I suppose the other thing, it depends on the asset class in terms of what's your occupancy. If you're a childcare, it's fast food and you drive past. Is it busy when it's supposed to be busy? Is it not busy? And then that'll drive a yield up or down. So it's hard to put a figure on a particular yield, but they can range anywhere from some really good assets, 4.5% all the way up to 7 or 8%. That's crazy because when you think about over time, I think most of us would generally agree that if someone ever referred just at a barbecue, oh, what, you know, what's a cap rate for a commercial property? The number seven used to always come up a lot. For me, 7% used to be what you demand as a cap rate, what the yield should be. We've spoken in that episode 155 about how that is made up for everyone listening if you don't understand that. But 7% these days is an extremely high number yeah, when you think about the that. numbers you see. Why is that? Is it simply just because the cash rate's dropped and the number above what people could get in the bank for a return deposit has dropped? Absolutely. So low rates have driven spending for own occupiers, as I touched on in the last episode, because it's affordable now to purchase opposed to lease. Okay. Yep. So that's the same residential argument as well. Same argument. And then it's driven investors to try and buy brick and mortar or buy something, even stocks or shares, that gives you a greater return because you're getting so little. Getting 0.01% in the from bank. leaving your cash in the bank. So it's driven these investors and own occupiers to buy property, which is fantastic because then it drives our market and we're transacting more and same principle of demand and supply. In this case, it's um, greater demand, so yields start to sharpen up a bit. Last question before we finish it off. Can you explain to me why it seems to be the case that we can expect buyers from the East Coast, whether it's in property in the East Coast or not, but generally seems to be property in the East Coast as well, to be paying a much lower cap rate, let's say we see fours in, from people from Sydney, whereas people from Perth seem reticent to go below five and a half? Yeah, look, it's a number of things in terms of your median house price over in Sydney is nearly a million bucks. Mm. There's a lot more population and people over in Sydney. So you're competing with a greater pool of buyers. So they're selling things at, yeah, some purchases. I think there was an auction yesterday was sub 4%. We never heard of that never before. Heard right? of it. That used to be a term deposit amount. Correct. So it is mind blowing. And what we're actually seeing is there's actually now East Coast investors who are looking at WA as an investment opportunity because everything is so hard to get their hands on, secure, or purchase because of the competition on the East Coast that WA is an opportunity now where you might still get the same asset class, but it might be a percent lower yield than what you would have got, as in a looser yield than what you'd pay over there. So, or a percent and a half or something along those lines. So, hopefully, their investment market being as crazy as it is over there drives them to look at other opportunities. And I think that's really important for us to leave it on today is if you are looking at selling commercial property, your buyer doesn't have to be a West Australian. Absolutely. Yep. Doesn't even have to be an Australian. That's true. Yeah. You can inquiry from all over the world, in particular, you know, China and Indonesia and parts of Asia. There's people that are definitely looking for opportunity. So, as you say, there's a big pool of buyers out there, and WA is a safe haven at the moment and quite an attractive place to live and invest in. Luke Rendazzo, Burgess Rawson, really appreciate you coming in again. Give us a bit more of a deep dive onto how those retail, commercial, and industrial markets are going in Western Australia. We'll get you in in a few months. Give us another update. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. See you later. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. 
If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!